Bringing together films from eight leading independent film distributors, Ovid.tv is the new streaming service for social issue, documentary, and independent films largely unavailable anywhere else. With over 500 titles available, Ovid.tv offers documentaries that address urgent political issues from the climate crisis to economic justice. We recommend watching Long Story Short, in which artist and MacArthur grantee Natalie Bookchin gathers interviews with over 100 people at homeless shelters and job training centers who discuss their experience and what they think should be done about American poverty and homelessness today. From now until October 25th, you can save 50% off the regular monthly subscription price. Just head over to www.ovid.tv. That's www.ovid.tv. Sign up with the coupon code Jacobin at checkout and you will get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. It is wild to think about the fact that we were not really talking about a Green New Deal even a year ago. Now, the Green New Deal is central to the American political agenda for anybody who's serious about stopping climate disaster and strengthening the American working class in the process. Unfortunately, the Democratic Party's leadership can't be included in that group of people who are serious about stopping climate change. In our spring 2019 print edition of Jacobin, Daniel Aldana Cohen makes the case that housing has to be a central piece of the Green New Deal. So I brought him on the show to talk about why and how. Daniel Aldana Cohen is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where he directs the Socio-Spatial Climate Collaborative. He's also a senior fellow at Data for Progress and the author of a forthcoming book tentatively titled Street Fight, Climate Change and Inequality in the 21st Century City. And he is also co-author of the forthcoming book, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, with Alyssa Battistoni, Kate Aronoff, and Theo Riofrancos, out later this year from Verso. The four of them are also the editors of Jacobin's Green New Deal series, which I'll link to in the show notes. You can read Daniel's piece, We Need a Green New Deal for Housing, in the spring 2019 print issue of Jacobin, Home Improvement. Daniel, hello. Hi. So before we get into your article in the housing issue of Jacobin, we are just a couple days out from Bernie Sanders dropping his Green New Deal plan. So what is your take on the plan, both in general and as it relates to housing? Yeah, it's great to be on. Uh, Big fan of Bernie Sanders, obviously. The Green New Deal plan that he put forward is just massive. $16 $16 trillion over 10 years. To give you a sense of scale, the U.S. military budget is $700 billion a year, roughly. So this is um, $1.6 trillion a year, a little over twice the military spending every single year. So that's great. It's the first plan that really lays out ambition um, financially and in terms of you know targets at the scale of the problem. So the plan is really good. It has a ton of interesting details. There's money for grocery stores, there's attention to disabilities. And the plan does make some mentions of housing, which I think add up to at least the minimum skeleton of a Green New Deal for housing. He says we need to build uh, essentially new public or new social housing for seven and a half million people who currently don't have access to housing. Um, The plan talks about upgrading public housing and also making investments such that all public housing complexes 
are resiliency centers for their own neighborhoods, which is something that I've advocated, actually. Um, and there's a ton of money for retrofits of both, of both businesses, but also homes and low-income homes. Right now, a third of Americans can't afford their utility bills. Utility bills are the main reason why low-income people take out payday loans, according to one study. So Bernie's agenda really gets the intersectional uh, quality of the housing crisis that you can tackle housing and climate at the same time, that a large part of that is through social housing. And another big part of it is helping poor folks in the homes that they rent or own be able to actually afford comfort and safety in those homes. So affordable housing is on the map in American politics and American society in a way that it hasn't been in quite a while. Uh, And the Green New Deal is obviously on the map uh, as of recently, thank God. Uh, But I think a lot of people don't quite understand the connections between the two, the sort of organic connections and, and why we need to talk about them both together, not just as separate issues that are both burning. So can you make that basic case of why do we do we need to have the Green New Deal have a whole plan for housing in the first place? Sure. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. The This is an insane moment, and it's great because you have a surging climate justice movement, and you also have a surging housing justice movement, and they're happening at the same time. Um, and they belong together. They fit together. Um, so the first piece of this is that housing costs are as important or more important to inequality as wage disparities or unemployment. Um, half of U.S. renter households are severely rent burdened. That means they pay over a third of their income in rent. Uh, a quarter of renter households pay half their income in rent. And this is racialized. Uh, you know, young people, people of color and women all suffer more from this. So housing inequality, which also drives the racial wealth gap, is, is a huge driver of inequality. And we have to recognize that. Um, second, extreme weather means that we're going to need more housing. Up to 13 million Americans will be displaced by sea level rise alone. Then you've got drought, you've got wildfire, um, and you've also got the need for the United States to have a lot more immigration for people who can't stay where they are living right now in other parts of the world. So we're going to need a massive amount of new housing. And then the other really big piece of it is that housing is a major contributor to the country's carbon footprint. Um, Housing is roughly a sixth of the country's carbon emissions. Um, transportation by car to and from housing is roughly a sixth. That adds up to a third of the carbon emissions that are causing this crisis. So low-carbon homes, affordable and available to everybody, and walkable, dense communities that are not driving gentrification, but that are actually combating gentrification. And this is a huge win for the climate. It's a huge win for safety and comfort and a good quality of life for people. Um, and there's just no reason to undertake a massive round of green investment without pulling in housing. And I think for the housing justice folks, it's really beneficial to say, okay, we're talking about investment again. We're talking about making big change. We have to join this conversation uh, and not be kind of left out of the cold, as it were, with just a focus on wind and solar and cars and, and that kind of stuff. For the campaigns that are going on right now, I'm thinking, for example, of the campaign that just won this summer in the state of New York to strengthen rent control laws and other sort of community level fights that are going on. How do you sort of insert a Green New Deal frame into those kinds of fights? We know that a lot of things are connected. (laughs) Everything is connected. Um, But how? Um, And so with housing and and climate, here's one way to think about it. Um, In California, a few years ago, the state stopped putting money into affordable housing. And then they put it back in 
through something called the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, which is the main way that California spends its revenue from cap and trade. Um, and basically 20% of the state's green investment now goes into housing. The other thing that California does, and New York State has adopted a law saying it would do essentially the same thing, is that California says about a third of our climate investments have to benefit uh, working class and or racialized communities. They call them environmental justice communities. New York State says a third of the clean energy funding has to go into frontline communities. And a core principle of the Green New Deal federally is that a huge amount of investment has to be targeted into frontline communities. The question is, well, how? And California already gives you a bit of a, a sense of that, is that if there is going to be investment in these communities, a lot of that is going to go to affordable housing. It should. And so that, I think, is where the real framework is. So when we think of people who aren't able to pay their utility bills or places that need new affordable housing built or neighborhoods uh, like in New York City that have NYCHA, which is public housing, but that housing is in serious disrepair and needs to be upgraded. I think the housing community can say, listen, there's already an argument that's been made and has really been won for green investment in these frontline communities. How are we going to spend it? We're going to spend it by rehabbing, upgrading, and building new, really high-quality, beautiful, really well-designed, super-sustainable housing. Um, Data for Progress did some polling the other day, and they put out in their latest newsletter, they asked, you know, do you support green investments in frontline communities? And among Democrats and independents, it's hugely popular. I mean, among Democrats, you have almost 80% support for green investment in frontline communities. And I would argue that there's a very strong case to be made, purely on substantive grounds, um, that housing is going to be one of those vehicles for making those green investments. Uh, and I think that housing campaigners really ha can only win by putting housing at the square or at the center of the kind of green investment agenda. Are there campaigns on the ground that are connecting the dots between housing and climate change in the way that you're suggesting? Yeah. Part of what's so exciting is that I am seeing these connections on the ground. And I'll just mention a couple examples. One is in New York City, where New York Communities for Change, which is a big grassroots working class movement, has been absolutely instrumental in getting New York City to pass uh, the country's most aggressive low-carbon bill for buildings. And one could get into the details, but the political piece is what's key. Um, this was a bill that was passed and that was proposed, uh, a bill to slash emissions from buildings in 2009 by Mike Bloomberg. And the Real Estate Board of New York came out very strongly against it, and it died. And the difference was that 10 years later, a bunch of different progressive groups anchored by housing built such a strong coalition to reduce New York's emissions in a way that really put the cost on, on real estate that the city council voted um, you know, something like 45 to 2 for a low-carbon bill that was stringently opposed by the Real Estate Board of New York. So it really took the housing movement to build a coalition strong enough to take down real estate and get that low-carbon bill. Um, I think even you know, in a really exciting national campaign is People's Actions got a campaign called the Homes Guarantee. They want to build 12 million new units of social housing, a ton of policies to prevent speculation, and displacement in neighborhoods, fight gentrification. And the Homes Guarantee platform is just shot through with Green New Deal tie-ins. Um, really exciting campaign, likely to get a lot of play in D.C. and strongly informed by grassroots housing movements all across the country. So I do think that, you know, on the ground, you are seeing a ton of people who are super excited to connect the climate fight and the housing fight. You mentioned before the need to 
create walkable communities. You write in the article about dense communities. Uh, can you talk about how uh, this, this is a sort of, I guess, just a personally uh, obnoxious uh, uh, thing to me in that because my my office, the Jacobin office in Chicago, is right by. Uh, these you know gleaming towers that have been built in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood on the northwest side of chicago and these towers that are insanely expensive uh and uh, you know are tower over the still existing working class housing in the neighborhood all pitch themselves as like being green and being uh you know there's there's no uh i forget the the term but it's like it's near transit so you can just walk to transit and there's this like green pitch to these you know monstrous uh monuments to uh gentrification and the sort of like success of capital of uh conquering the neighborhood there's even one near the office that's called micah the name of the building is micah which is just like salt in the wound to me but uh can you talk about uh that sort of like green pitch for a lot of the new housing construction that is happening in gentrifying urban areas and sort of maybe what's good and what's not so good about that yeah that's that's a great question um micah (laughs) uh Density is low carbon insofar as living in an apartment tends to use less energy than, of course, a single detached house, which is losing heat or losing hot air or cold air through the walls. Um, and density is lower carbon insofar as you walk around uh, rather than you know driving your car. And in theory, although the evidence we're still looking for it, in theory, if you live in, a, in an apartment rather than like a big house, certainly McMansion, you just have less space to park like your fourth Ikea couch or something. So it may be that, that the density even helps you consume a bit less in terms of physical objects. The, the problem is that if you're really rich, then even if you save some money because you don't own a car, although rich people in dense neighborhoods often do, if you're really rich and you live in downtown Manhattan or you live in like downtown Brooklyn and you fly everywhere for vacation, that's going to blow out all the savings that would come from the fact that you walk to brunch instead of driving to brunch. In fact, there's some evidence that residents of dense urban neighborhoods fly more than people who live in large suburban homes. So I've been kind of waging this war um, kind of on the internet and and in arguments. And it's funny because I basically say all the data shows, if you do careful consumption-based carbon footprint analysis, and I'm doing a lot of that myself, all that data shows that affordable density is super low carbon, but really rich people living densely has no carbon benefit. And then on the other side, you have these Bloomberg types, Mike Bloomberg types, who say, oh, all the data shows that raw density is good, period. And it doesn't. And the whole brand of Michael Bloomberg is data. And these people basically say, oh, all these lefties who want to talk about gentrification, you know, they're just emotional. They just have these political obsessions. But the data really shows like it's all about density. And and it's just not true. And, you know, I've written about this in a journal of urban research. I've written about this in in Nature. Um, So what we really need to create is multiracial, mixed-income neighborhoods anchored by affordable housing. Those are the neighborhoods that are the the best to live in. They reflect the fundamental spirit of public life, which is really low carbon. It's the library, it's the playground, it's the basketball court, rather than just a shopping mall. Um, So that's the kind of like urban space we need to create, the historic space of the working class city, basically. Um, And affordable housing becomes the absolute core of that agenda. That's how you decarbonize urban space. And I've got all the data to show it 10 times over. Sounds like you're essentially talking about the the other side of this issue being a sort of there's the green arguments for Yimbyism 
uh, probably that that's sort of like the upshot of a lot of it, right? Is like let us let us build these gigantic uh, towers because you know it's it, density is good for the planet. But like you cite something in your article, for example, uh, that uh, people living in the West Village uh, have. Uh, carbon footprints that are like two to three times that of similarly dense neighborhoods in the Bronx, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Exactly. If you take the West Village, if you take Midtown Manhattan, um, and you compare that to parts of the Bronx, parts of Queens, in many cases, really beautiful, wonderful, wonderful neighborhoods to live in that were built by philanthropic, affordable housing kind of champions in the early 20th century with tons of public services. Um, the carbon footprints in the wealthier neighborhoods are exactly like you said, two to three times higher, uh, in some cases, even more. And so it's not raw density, it's affordable density. That's how you drive down emissions. And the, the other thing actually that just drives me crazy is, again, the data shows, and I just did a brief on this for the Climate Energy Policy Center here at Penn, that you only need to get about as dense as neighborhoods in you know Brooklyn or Queens, like your average kind of like row house neighborhood you know, those people walk to brunch. <laughs> uh, so the image of Manhattan as a kind of paragon of ecological sustainability is just groundless. Um, it only benefits a very certain kind of luxury agenda. Um, I do want to say one quick thing about rent control, which I think is often forgotten. Like the big terror that so many people have in this country, rightly, is that if you make a green improvement, like any kind of improvement to a neighborhood, even adding public transit, is that it will drive up property values and that will cause gentrification. And that fear is justified. I mean, it, it, that fear really is justified. And there's, I'm not even joking, there's a sub-literature in environmental governance, and the keyword is just green enough. How can you make neighborhoods green enough to improve life, just green enough, but not so green that the real estate industry notices? And that's ridiculous. And what's so great about rent control, and Sam Stein wrote about this in Jacobin, is that if you control or basically regulate rents significantly, then that means that improvements to a neighborhood won't drive displacement. So you actually need the rent control and you need the new social housing to allow for equitable urban improvements. Like it, you have to make it possible through changing the market, essentially regulating it and tamping it down um, in order for green urban improvements to actually benefit the people who live in those neighborhoods. I remember a line, I think, from a Harper's article from years ago about gentrification in Harlem, where uh, the author was sort of examining these like new trees that had been planted in the neighborhood and and there was a young black kid out playing on the street and so she's sort of chatting with him about it and he's just like you know I, I don't think those trees are for me like <laughs> you know the trees are the harbinger of the rising property values uh that that's what that's what they're there for they're not to you know save the planet and to make life better for the residents uh, the are the longtime residents of Harlem they're there to pave the way for gentrification I mean, that's the tragedy. Honestly, if you take New York and you look at the most successful environmental justice movements, they're in neighborhoods like Harlem, Williamsburg, Sunset Park. Uh, and those are the neighborhoods that are getting like insanely gentrified. Uh, so we have to break the link between environmental re remediation, environmental improvement, which is absolutely necessary, and social displacement. And you cannot do that in the framework of the free market. You cannot. You have to build social housing, which is non-market housing, and you have to have rent control. And we got to have that all over the country. And just real quick, based on what you just said, I mean, I mentioned Yimbyism before, but it occurs to me that you know, I think a lot of listeners are probably a little uh, unsure on what exactly that means. Uh, so, can you just uh, lay out 
briefly why you know what that philosophy is and why when it comes to housing it won't be in in addition to it it not being able to uh, solve the the crisis of gentrification also cannot be used to save the planet sure i mean so the yimby idea is yimby stands for yes in my backyard and that's framed in opposition to nimby no in my backyard and it's actually one of these really frustrating political debates where both sides are wrong so not in my backyard, right, is like all these often like affluent white single family homeowners. They're like, I don't want to have any social housing in my neighborhood. Often, as you know, there are parts of the country where you can't even build public housing in a suburb because they're afraid the quote unquote wrong people will show up. So the yes in my backyard people picked up on that. They were like, that's really not good. Um, so I'm yes in my backyard. I want housing development in my neighborhood and I'm going to make it all about zoning and I'm going to make an alliance with developers. And working with developers, we're going to break this stranglehold that prevents densification. And there are a lot of problems with this framework. Among the most important is that you make developers your main ally. Whereas if you're thinking more holistically about affordable density, like we talked about, developers are really not allies. I mean, you need some private development. You can't build all housing with the public sector, at least tomorrow. But um, making the developers the kind of heroes of the story creates really screwed up politics, you end up having fights between YIMBY and affordable housing advocates. It's just a giant mess. So the fundamental problem is that if you frame this as YIMBY versus NIMBY, um, you end up in a fight that nobody can win. I mean, the NIMBYs are basically wrong, and the YIMBYs are trying to enlist private developers to create good urban spaces, when in many cases, the solution to creating good urban spaces is to tamp down the real estate market, and that inevitably entails a trench fight against the private developers. Daniel, you're an academic, so you know that you need some kind of pithy, uh, clever catchphrase or new word uh, to really get a concept to catch on. So I, you got to come up with what that's going to be. You're like Simbi, it's like socialism in my backyard. Ganimbi, green, Ganadimbi, green new deal in my backyard. I don't know. You got you to gotta work on that. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, my solution is we need a Green New Deal for housing, and I don't want a, I don't want a backyard. <laughs> <laughs> I, want, I want public facilities and honestly don't even want stairs in my home. I just want to be able to walk around very easily. You heard it here, folks. These socials are going to take away your stairs. In the piece, you talk about why public-private partnerships aren't the way to fix the housing crisis or the climate crisis. And I think this is important to talk about because... That term, public-private partnership, I mean, it sounds like, you know, an alternative to the YIMBYism that you were just talking about. It's like, okay, well, it's not public, but at least it's public and private, and at least it's a partnership, right? They're, we're, we got a middle ground, and they're like, they're not fighting, they're shaking hands, the public and the private together. Like, what could be wrong with this? So could you just talk about why those public-private partnerships that have been used all over the country, all throughout Europe as well. But I know in Chicago, like our, you know, our, our big infrastructural plan that Rahm Emanuel carried out a few years ago was an example of this. Uh, it's increasingly being used in the United States and has been used ac- across Europe for a while. So what's wrong with these public-private partnerships, particularly on the issue of housing construction? I mean, I think in general, it's important to remember that 99 times out of 100, the way that a public-private partnership works is that The government absorbs all the risk, puts up the lion's share of the money, and the private sector reaps all the benefits. Um, Those are financial benefits. 
the public doesn't reap benefits. The quality is often terrible, whether you're talking about housing, hospitals, infrastructure, you name it. Um, in terms of housing, I think you know two things are important about this public-private partnership story. First, the racial wealth gap in the U.S. is a public-private partnership. Um, there is growing awareness that the New Deal housing policy was about making mortgages possible for middle-class and upper-middle-class white families. But as Kianga Yamada-Taylor's work shows, the long history of the racial wealth gap, wealth gap is about a partnership between real estate and the federal government that on the one hand provides these good accessible mortgages for working class, especially middle-class and upper-middle-class white people, and then produces these extremely predatory financing mechanisms for black and brown families that trap them into spirals of debt. So it's not just that the government was racist creating the racial wealth gap. It's a public-private partnership. Um, the second piece is that, yeah, since the 1980s, the main form of affordable housing construction in the U.S. is through something called low-income housing tax credits. It's a pretty complex system. Um, the main things to know about it are that it is very expensive to create affordable housing through LIHTC, L-I-H-T-C, LIHTC. Um, the number of units per dollar spent keeps going down. And it's extremely slow and inefficient. So people will say, oh, the market, it's so efficient. It's so fast. Um, I was talking to somebody in San Francisco who was saying, you know, to line up the tax credits just to get a housing project started, it takes two years with the light tech system. And I was talking about that with someone in Philadelphia and they laughed in my face, like two years, best case scenario. Uh, most people put in multiple bids. So the efficiency is not there at all. It is a semi-efficient tax break system and a horrible housing construction system. And if you had direct grants to housing authorities um, or even direct grants to nonprofits that were controlled, let's say, by labor unions or by other grassroots groups um, of largely workers, then you would have far more efficient, far more effective uh, use of public funds to create affordable housing. So you mentioned uh, public housing. Uh, can you talk about that in the context of the Green New Deal uh, and in, also, in general, I mean, like, I think people are starting to, on the left, coming around to this idea that we need to have social housing and public housing as, as a solution to the affordable housing crisis. But obviously, in the United States especially, public housing has been so demonized for precisely these neoliberal purposes of being able to, you know, for, for real estate developers to uh, make money on housing as much as possible, to, to, to make as much of the housing market private as possible. Uh, so can you talk about sort of the ties between public housing and social housing and the Green New Deal and how we uh, wage that fight to, to, to put it back on the agenda? There's a long and interesting historical conversation we could have about public housing in the U.S., but the really short bit that's essential is that coming out of a fight during the New Deal, which the left lost, um, public housing in the U.S. became an idea where it was we're building these homes kind of of last resort, very subsidized, ultimately for racialized working class and, and lower income people. And so you end up with a model of public housing that is really kind of the housing equivalent of welfare policy. And that means the housing itself was not always of great quality, and in particular, the the maintenance was underfunded. And it also meant politically that it was very easy to attack um, because in many of these non-universalistic policies, you then just say, oh, that's for these like undeserving people. We don't need to fund it, blah, blah, blah. And now you have a very sort of like dilapidated public housing stock around the country and public housing has really been neglected. Now, the, 
the reason I say that is that we do need to defend that housing that exists. We need to invest in upgrading it and making it green and making it really high quality for the people who live there. And that will be good for their entire communities. There's no question that we have to save the public housing that exists. Um, and there is a huge amount of social good that that will do. But the model has to be from Europe. Um, and I talk in this uh, Jacobin essay, We Need a Green New Deal for Housing, about Red Vienna. Um, yeah, you, you, you had a religious experience in Red Vienna, right? I, I, I did. You know, it's funny. I, I, my mother's Guatemalan. And when I was young and learned about the Latin American left, it was just like, oh, my God, this is this beautiful story. So inspiring and so on. And I kind of had almost this. It was sort of like learning again about the Sandinistas or the Cuban Revolution or all these different experiences in Latin America. I went to Vienna. I had heard that there was social housing there. And I went to visit the Karl Marx Hof, which is the sort of people think of it as a temple of public housing in Vienna, just enormous complex, 1200 units beautiful, tons of gardens. And I kind of was there and I realized this whole city is the temple. It's not just the Karl Marxhof. Um, in Vienna right now, one third of the housing is public, city owned. One third of the housing is cooperative. One third of the housing is private market. I mean, it's insane. Like we think of Vienna as this like imperial festooned capital, but it's, I mean, it is really a city by and for the working class. And for comparative purposes, do you know off the top of your head what those numbers are in the U.S.? I imagine it's in the single digits. In New York City, which has by far the most public housing, about 4.5% of residents live in public housing. So that's just over a tenth of what you see in, in Vienna. Um, so the history in Vienna is really important. It's, first of all, the Social Democrats, which is the left party in Vienna, have literally never lost an election. Um, starting in 1919, when Vienna you know, became part of Austria, um, so it's very much a project of the left. From the beginning, social housing was sort of the fusion of a labor movement, public health movement, and feminist movements, um, all of which are basically born on the barricades in 1848 during the European People's Spring. And what happens in 1919 is that, you know, Austria is kind of ruined by the, you know, what happened after World War I. Um, there's a massive housing crisis. And basically what they decide to do is they say the landlord's going to eat this. We need to restore the economy. The landlord's going to eat this. Even, fed, even the, the national government passes massive rent controls. And the city government says, okay, we have to build a massive amount of new housing to house our people. And what they realized was that housing is not just an add-on, but it actually becomes the lever for social justice. So they pass incredibly punishing uh, taxes on the rich to pay for the public housing. Um, about 40% of the income for public housing came from a property tax and uh, rather of the income from the property tax, 40% came from the 0.5% wealthiest properties. So extremely disproportionate taxation of the super rich. Um, and the public housing is designed to be a labor strategy. So they have deliberately kind of ornate architecture because there were all these craftsmen who needed work to do. So it's beautiful. They made it beautiful for the residents and also as a, as a labor strategy. They put social services in all of their housing units. So the Karl Marx Hof had dental clinics, libraries, cultural centers, and they, and they all had this. The idea was that through this kind of infrastructural investment, you would also make social policy. And, you know, when we talk about the Green New Deal, that's also what I'm trying to get at. A Green New Deal for housing isn't just creating boxes for people to live in. It is, we're going to spend a bunch of money on the built environment. We're going to make sure that that meets all of our social objectives, all of our social um, desires. Um, and so now, you know, more, more resiliency. Well, and the subheading for your piece in the 
in the print issue is referring to uh, the public housing in Vienna as a uh, temple of public luxury, right? You're, you're not just meeting people's needs. Needs there's actual publicly provided luxury in these in these units. That's right. So one thing I, I you know I mentioned in the piece, and I think the story is has, I discovered this sort of as a footnote in a history of public housing in New York City. Um, so Vienna has this kind of luxurious public social model, and it's not super well known, but it's extremely successful in Vienna. Hated, by the way, by the the American right. The Brookings Institute goes to Vienna in the 30s, and they release a report in 1934. They say this was a waste of money. They house the tenth of the city. They say, but that was a bad money use of money. They should have built concrete shacks for workers in the suburbs, saved on the money, and then done something else with with the savings, which is just insane. Uh, and now, of course, the housing in Vienna is, is number one in the world. Um, the the public luxury piece. So Roland Wonk, who is a Hungarian immigrant to the United States in the 1920s, had spent some time in Vienna, had seen the Karl Marxhof, actually designed um, a cooperative building for socialist workers, mostly Jewish, I think some Italian, in the Lower East Side, very much inspired by the Karl Marxhof um, in Vienna. Architectural details very similar. And the thing that kind of kills me about his building in the Lower East Side, which is still beautiful to go to today, they even had balconies on the rooftops. This is in the early 1930s. Uh, for people to dance on and to play music into the night. Um, that was the vision. Uh, they had a small community theater. There was room for a library on the ground floor. So there is actually in the 1930s, what should have been U.S. style public housing, but that victory was, you know, that struggle was lost. But there is that echo of Red Vienna in New York. And the guy who built this home, Roland Wonk, goes on to become chief architect of the Tennessee Valley Authority, building beautiful dams and beautiful workers' housing throughout the U.S. South. Um, showing, I think, that there is this intrinsic link between the public energy system and the public housing dream uh, that we have to revive today. You have a quote from someone who was showing you around the housing in Vienna when you're looking at some of the art deco stonework there. He says to you, this is not cost effective. This is about love making a statement. That's right. Um, It was great to go and get shown around by an architect to this housing. And the thing is, about, I guess, going to Vienna and seeing the public housing there. And I toured a, a large number of the public housing units um, taken around by a local social democrat who's a historian and a, and a city councilor, is that you kind of like, I talk about that religious experience. It's like, we don't have to just have a purely instrumental relationship to our homes. Like, yeah, I have to pay my rent in, in the United States. Uh, you just have to. But like, that is really not the only way. And w- imagine if you had a city where the working class movement was in charge forever. And what would that look like? And the entire American media would try to convince you that it would look like a dull gray concrete box. Actually, that's the right wing vision. And they're doing a pretty good job of it here in the US. Um, And when the left is in charge, these are beautiful, monumental spaces. I mean, Vienna is a city where we drank Negronis out of like a Negroni truck downtown. And they said, this is where we have, they said, this is where we have the summer concerts, Daniel. And I said, we have summer concerts also in New York. And they said, yeah, but they're sponsored by corporations. So I was like, yeah. <laughs> they're like, do you think we would besmirch our city with sponsorship <laughs> of a public monster series? They're just so dripping with condescension. I'm not going to do their Austrian accent. They're like, you know, you just, you've just sold everything. You've just completely sold that. Like, you don't understand. Like, here we make life good for people. That's what we do. And by the way, the bastions of social housing in Vienna are the bastions of the left. That's where so many of the, the country's immigrants live. They vote for the left. They are the anti-fascist force is public housing. Right. So it's not just being provided with the good that you need. It is creating a constituency that will then mobilize to defend the good. 
That's right. I mean, and actually, you know, the tragedy is that in, in the 30s, when the, um, when the far right came in from the countryside and there was a bloody civil war, they actually shelled the public housing complexes. Um, they called them the Red Fortresses. So Karl Marx Hoff, the massive public, public housing complex, which surrounds an enormous garden, was literally shelled by, by fascists. So it is, um, it is not an exaggeration. And, you know, the um, social architect, and the name escapes me off the top of my head, but the kind of politician who really put this policy together uh, in the early 1920s Vienna, he was killed in, in Auschwitz. And I think, it, you know, it would be a mistake to see public housing as just a great thing that is outside of history, like an nice idea on a bullet point. No, it is very much part of a core battle over how the economic system works. Do we have an economy for working people? Or do we have an economy for wealthy industrialists who pit people of different races, religions, classes against each other, and ultimately like a war to the death? That's what climate change is about, too. So in summary, we're going to save the planet from burning to a crisp. We're going to do so. A key part of doing so will be building housing for the people and not just your gray concrete boxes, but fully luxurious, uh, you know, housing that creates lives that are worth living and social ties that are worth living and uh you know we'll all live in what the uh the president bernie will announce the uh the eugene debs hoff <laughs> in one in every uh city in america wow i think even for jacobin comparing Karl marx to eugene debs feels a little bit like a letdown but um yeah i mean I, but the basic idea is right that's that's exactly right you do defeat climate change by building the most beautiful the best designed the most efficient homes they actually push forward the frontier of energy efficient technology. They create the workforce that will upgrade and build homes for the rest of the communities. They create the cultural spaces that give life the meaning that we deserve. You know, we deserve to live in the most beautiful possible homes. That is not intention with fighting climate change. That is the way that we fight climate change. Well, Daniel, my heart is soaring. I'm ready to go to the barricades for this vision of affordable housing under a Green New Deal. So thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited for the Green New Deal for housing. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com. 